Food is a sacrament, if you will, in the ancient world because of its scarcity. Uh, there's not a lot of it. Uh, most of the world still practices like that, that they have very great difficulty in finding enough food to eat. And so uh, in that ancient time, and especially this meal of the Lord's Supper or Passover, uh, this is a fairly a significant time in the life of Jesus as he ends his earthly ministry and goes to the cross. And I thought, you know, uh, one of the things uh, that uh, I remember Ronald Reagan said was that all change in America begins at the kitchen table. All change in America begins at the kitchen table where families and people are talking together, sharing their concerns and sharing their interests, that there's a, a, a sense of the table. And you know what? We've instituted something here in our class called Dinner for Eight. Any, any of y'all involved in that? Yeah. Yeah, good. I, I hope some of you more will be. You know, it's fascinating when you get with people around a table, around a table, the fellowship that you enjoy. And we tried to encourage people to be a part of that. What I'm fascinated about is when we have our uh, dinner for eight, we've had that a, a few times with our little group, and the things that we learn about each other. I, I learned the other night that Brian Gorney actually believes the Do Detroit Lions are still, I mean, the Detroit Tigers are still in the playoffs. <laughs> Where are you, Brian? <clears throat> oh, he didn't come. <laughs> yeah. Brian is a great Detroit Tigers fan. He loves them. I also discovered that, uh, that uh, Doug Burleson actually believes that the Kansas City Royals are going to beat the Houston Astros. Amen. It's not going to happen, right? Come on, give me a little love here. <laughs> oh, I didn't say that. <clears throat> uh, but you learn all kinds of things from people, don't you, at the table. You, there, there are all kinds of things that you learn at the table about one another. I, I'm fascinated by people, their lives and their experiences and their thoughts and their beliefs. And I, I really encourage you, if you're not part of a dinner for eight, talk to Beth or myself or uh, uh, Vicki Foster and uh, get about that. At the table here in Jesus' life, there's, uh, at least I'm seeing some things, a couple of things I've really not seen before, I have to tell you, as I've studied a little more in depth. Uh, and as I look at this, I want us to look here in John 13. Uh, we're going to start, uh, if you uh, will, in verse 18 here in just a moment. But I have a friend uh, that grew up here in Oklahoma City named Barry Brown. Some of y'all may know his family or others. And Barry uh, lives in um, San Francisco now and uh, uh, is uh, ha having a ministry there and following Jesus and, and just talking to people about Jesus. And Barry said something a few years ago that, that really kind of, uh, we were at a table or, or eating dinner we do at the National Prayer Breakfast sometimes. And I remember Barry said this exactly at that dinner, but one place he said, you know, it's important for people to believe in Jesus. And I, I think we would probably agree with that, that it's important for people to believe in Jesus. But he said this, but it might be even more important to believe what Jesus believed. It, it, get the, you know, it, it's important to believe in Jesus, and I believe that, but it might be as equally important to believe what Jesus believed. And so I want to look at that today around this table and some of the things that he said under that kind of idea of this table time of not just believing in Jesus, we know we hear that, but believing or understanding or believing what Jesus believed. And so let's start here at verse 18. We ended last week with this. It said, if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. Then in verse 18, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But is that the scripture might be fulfilled, he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, 
you may believe that I am. Now, I know most of your translations put the word he at the end of that. Uh, but I want to tell you, literally, it's ego a me, uh, which is translated I am. In other words, say that you may believe that I am. Now, the translation, translators have included the pronoun he because it makes a little more sense. But, but Jesus is really saying here that you may believe that I am. And you know that's the sacred name of God, Vayahi, Yahweh in the Old Testament. I am that I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples had been looking at one another at a loss to know what, to which one he was speaking. They were reclining on Jesus' bosom, or there was reclining on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Really, that's John. John never identifies himself any other way in the Gospel of John except the disciple that Jesus loved. Um, I don't know. I, I th I, what he was doing was uh, trying to not make much of himself. But when we read that now, it sounds a little arrogant, doesn't it? <laughs> like, oh, I'm the one he loves, you know. <laughs> well, what about us? You know? <laughs> yeah, you know, what about us? So it really was an attempt to not draw attention to himself. But it sort of reads like that. You go, well, we'll get the intent. Uh, so Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us who it is with whom he is, who he is speaking of. And he, John, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus said, this is the one to whom I dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of, Iscar of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel, Satan entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one at the reclined at the table knew for what purpose he had said this. I'll try to explain this, how this could happen without them understanding this. I mean, it's like, are they that dense? You know, well, I'll try to explain that. For while some were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, but the things that have need of the feast or else that he would give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately. It was night. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, while I am go where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, I want to walk through this, and it's a big passage. I know some of y'all thinking he can't do this, but I can <laughs> if I have to. I want to look at this because at this table, uh, some of the things that I'm thinking that Jesus believes in. And number one, I want to suggest is Jesus' belief about Scripture. Jesus' belief <clears throat> about Scripture. Now, Jesus takes this statement here when he says, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I've chosen. But it is that the scripture might be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. You know, I read this verse years ago, and I still have, and a lot of people have read this. And often people read into this passage a deterministic 
like Judas had to do this. This is something that had to happen. And I want to suggest to you something here that might be going on differently. Uh, Jesus might not be making the statement like we've assumed that Judas had to do this and that it's predetermined that he has to do it and poor Judas. I've, I've had people uh, talk about this to me before to say, you know, some of the difficult passages in the Bible uh, that this is one of them, that poor Judas, he didn't have a chance and, and all these kind of matters. So I, I want to try to walk us uh, through this. Let me be clear, first of all, to say this to you about this uh, text and how Jesus is working with it. Notice here, if you will, if you, if you have a study Bible or you have footnotes in there, that this uh, passage here, he said that, I, I speak, it, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He who eats my bread is lifted his heel. That's an Old Testament passage, right? You see that there? Do you see it in your Bible or a footnote? That's a quote from the Old Testament. And what it is, is originally out of Psalm 41. It's a psalm that David wrote, uh, if you will, <clears throat> about a time in his life when he was having struggles. Some have thought this was maybe when his son Absalom was against him, that somebody, his friend or someone at his table had lifted his heel against him. And so uh, Jesus takes this passage and says, when this is going to happen, the, the, the betrayal of me, when it does, this will fulfill what this passage says. Now, when I was in seminary, that bothered me because I know in these New Testament passages, they have an original context. You know, if, if you go back and read some of the Old Testament passage, something's really going on there. Those, they're not all prophetic. Uh, in, in, in Isaiah 7, uh, show, show a, a, something, uh, you know, a miracle to King Hezekiah. It says, a virgin shall give forth a son. And, and, and it, we've taken that over in the New Testament and said, well, that refers to Jesus. Let me tell you what's going on here. There's a practice in Jewish study of the Bible in the scriptures called pesher. Write this word down, P-E-S-H-E-R. P-E-S-H-E-R. And it is a practice in the Old Testament time and in the New Testament time where a, a, a scholar or a person studying the Scripture finds an Old Testament passage and says, okay, that's what it meant originally. But there's another meaning to this in the future that God will fulfill in the Messiah. You with me here? There's an original meaning to this passage that meant, it really meant something to David. It really was true of David. It really occurred. And the New Testament writers and Jesus himself here practiced this thing to say, you remember that Old Testament passage in the Old Testament? Well, that would be where it is, Cliff. Okay, thank you. I've been up late last night. Uh, uh, the, the, the idea here, remember that Old Testament passage about David? Well, that happened, but what's happening to me fulfills it, brings it to the full. Jesus is using this well-known practice here, and the New Testament writers do the same thing. Now, I want to I use that because I want to talk to you about what that means here, what, what I think Jesus believed about the Scripture, and what all of those passages in the New Testament that say, this was to fulfill what the Old Testament writer said. And that's this. Jesus believed that he was the goal of Scripture. He fulfilled it. Jesus believed that he was the goal of Scripture. That what God had laid down in the Old Testament, what God is doing in the world today, or back then, is to say that it is Jesus Christ who is the fulfillment 
of Scripture. Not in some deterministic way, but to say, you know that passage back there, you know? You heard about that with David? Well, let me tell you something. That's being fulfilled and brought to fullness in me. Does that make sense? You don't have to agree with it, but I'm just, you know, the, the idea here, I think this helps in several ways. I don't want to be unkind here, but I personally believe that the Scriptures teach here and other places that Jesus is the goal and the fulfillment of Scripture. If you're interested in this, you can study some more, but jot this little verse down here, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. And I know there's been a lot of discussion in the last several months about prophecy, hadn't there? There's been a lot of discussion about moons and different things like that, and I have some friends that believe some of that stuff, and I, you know, I, I honor them for believing what they believe, and that's okay. Uh, I, I understand that. But I live by the principle that Jesus is the goal and the fulfillment of all of God's promises. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. He says this, all of the promises of God are yes in Jesus. All of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. So I look at the Old Testament and I see it and I believe it. And I understand some of these things that are going on. But I understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise God made. That will change a little bit the way you read some of this stuff. It'll, it'll change the way you understand it to recognize that what is occurring here is Jesus is saying, there's no deterministic thing here. There, nobody has to do this. I'm simply saying when this happens... This fulfills what the Old Testament was talking about. This brings to fullness. The Greek word pleireo, or the word for fulfill, means to bring to completion, to bring to fullness. So what David experienced was somebody raising up their heel against him who was a friend at his table. Jesus is saying, that is completely fulfilled in what is happening to me. Jesus is the goal of Scripture. Jesus' life and ministry. Now, these have major implications, I understand, in the way that you view prophecy. It has major implications about how you understand the Old Testament and the fulfillment of prophecy. And I'm not here to say that I have the only answer here. I'm simply saying this, that before the coming of Jesus, these promises now find their yes. I love the way King James says it, I think, as I recall correctly. They are yea and amen in Jesus that he is that fulfillment. N.T. Wright says it like this, that Jesus, and again, this, this, you don't have to agree with this, this different people, that Jesus is the true Israelite. That Jesus is the true one. He's the one that all of the promises of God find their yes in him. When he says, I've chosen you, but I know who, he said, I, 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 I do not speak of all of you. I've cho I know I've chosen but it's the scripture would be fulfilled that he who has eaten my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now, I know this. What I'm talking about is this. Christocentric fulfillment. Christ is the center. In our tradition in the church of God, we've in the last couple of years adopted our mantra, if you will, is that it, uh, Jesus is everything. It's, we understand God. We understand, we understand the reality of life through Jesus. 
it seems that it has to be that way to me. Notice this when he says that it will be fulfilled. You know, Jesus, as I wrote, no one took Jesus' life from him, did they? You know, Judas betrayed him. Did that have to happen? Really? Jesus couldn't lay his life down without it. Well, 21, he said, I'm troubled. Truly, I say, one, yes, one will betray them. Him. Yeah, one will betray him. I want to get to that. One, one will betray him. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I'm going to say this. Here's what Jesus said. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. No one had the authority to make Jesus go to the cross or die. He laid it down on his own. Now, related to that idea, we look at Judas, if you will. He, I'll, I'll go ahead. Because Jesus knew somebody was going to do it, does that mean Jesus caused it? No. Hmm. Because he knew it, didn't mean he caused it. it. Didn't mean he made it happen, did it? I could be standing here on the corner of this building and see two cars that are just about, they don't see each other about to hit. I can know it and not cause it, right? I can know it and not cause it. I, I, I don't think that there has to be a betrayal. Jesus knows it will. What I'm, I'm talking about now from a basic theological understanding that he didn't have to do that. Jesus laid his life down. Jesus gave it up willingly. He does know, no doubt about it. He does know that someone will. Some have suggested or thought that Judas is just someone that Jesus had and knew. Think, look how Judas is portrayed in the Bible. In John 12, 5 to 6, Judas is what? A thief. A thief. Look what it says in John 6, 64. Judas did not believe. Judas didn't believe. Jesus said, I, I know who I've chosen and... And, uh, and, and there are those of you who do not believe. Go back and look at that in John 6. This included Judas and lots of other people that followed him. Jesus makes a statement and a hundred and something people leave him. So that the idea is that Jesus is, this is being fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Not because he's had to determine it, but because he knows it. He knows it's going to happen. He's taking the Old Testament and saying, you know what that says back there? Now let me explain this to you. Now let me, let me try to make this observation and we'll see if we move on. Here, here's what I'm saying and I want you to think about as you interpret the New Testament. That you'll understand that some of these passages are taken out of context. Some of them are just taken out of context. That's all there is to it. And said, this is to fulfill. And you read this over and over again. It means that Jesus is the goal. All of the Bible is going to Him. All of our understanding of God's activity and action is moving to Him. Let me, let me move on here real quick. I, gotta, I wanna try to get this. We can do some, uh, what if this week you made Jesus the subject or the goal of all your reading of the Bible by asking, how does this passage help me understand the person, work, and the spirit of Jesus? How does this passage help me? You know, there are some thoughts running around at times that people who claim to believe in Jesus don't act much like him. <laughs> you know, they believe in him, but they don't act much like him. 
This is an idea of saying that Jesus is the goal of all of this activity. Jesus is the goal of all that God is doing. And anything that doesn't line up with him, we ought to be suspicious, right? We ought to be suspicious about. We ought to be suspicious about something that doesn't line up with being fulfilled, brought to fullness with Jesus. Try that this week. Second, let's move on to verse 19 here. Jesus' belief about faith. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. That you may believe that I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, he receives whomever I send receives me, and he receives me, receives him who sent me. It's a beautiful concession here. These guys are hearing Jesus saying, I'm fulfilling the Old Testament here. I'm the one. And I'm telling you all of this so that when it happens, what does he say? When it, what will happen when it happens? You'll, you'll believe. Isn't it interesting? Did Jesus think that faith was a leap in the dark? Or did Jesus think faith was based on evidence? Evidence. Yeah, right here. He said, I'm, I'm showing you this so when it happens, you'll believe. I, I think there's a, a false understanding that faith is just a leap in the dark. That, that faith is just believe something and the power of belief will make it true. You ever get that sense from people? That the power of belief will make it true. If I believe, believe it strong enough. If I believe, I remember when I was a kid, we had a garage over our, by our house and I believed after watching a movie that I could, fl- I could float down slowly because I jumped off the uh, the garage with an umbrella. It not only wasn't true, there were some consequences I had not imagined (laughs) from my mother. (laughs) I'm not just talking about turning an ankle. I really believed it. I, I really believed it. Sometimes I think that we don't get the understanding, at least I think in Jesus' mind here in other places. Look, look over at chapter 14 just for a second. Look over at chapter 14. Over in chapter, we'll get there in a week or so. When Jesus said in chapter 14, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father's in me, or otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. He said, look, believe that I'm in the Father, but, but if you can't believe that, then believe what? The works. See, Jesus is, is offering evidence here to say faith is not simply jumping into the dark and hoping what you believe is true. This is why I think it's so important for us to constantly be studying the scriptures, to constantly be working through this kind of material uh, in order to be able to say, my hope has found a rest, my faith has found a resting place. Remember that hymn we used to sing? Anybody remember what a hymn is? <laughs> yeah, if you're under 35, you have no idea. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, th- my, my faith has found a resting place. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Rock of ages, all of these kinds of ideas that faith, if you will, has some evidentiary material for us to look at. You know, think about it this way. How do you get faith? You know that, right? How do you get it? 
Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing. And hearing the word of God. That's how faith comes. You know, Jesus is saying there, there's some evidence here. You, you, can, you can read this. You can study this. I, I think I've struggled for years thinking I just need more faith. I need more faith. And I tried to find it in here somewhere. I tried to work it up, you know, try to come on, get more faith, get more faith. Wait, faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. So Jesus is saying here, look, I'm telling you this. So when it happens, you'll know. What, what, what is it he's telling me and you in his scriptures? That if we would know that and study it and read it, that we would know because we've read it. Because faith comes from this hearing and this, this understanding that comes from Jesus. Notice what he said. You'll know what? I am. Notice there in verse 19. You'll believe that I am. This is one of those I am statements, if you will, in John. I'm the bread of life. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the way, the truth, and life. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus said, when you see this stuff happen, when you see me betrayed, when you see me giving my life, you'll know I am. This speaks to this point, and I've said it before, but I want to tell you again that this is the critical piece in faith. What is the object of your faith? Not how much do you have, not how much feeling do you have, it's the object of your faith. If the object of my faith is unreliable, it won't matter how much faith I have. If the object of my faith isn't true, isn't real, it won't matter how much faith you have. It's always in Him. They'll know that I am He. The object of your faith. I've talked to you about this before. I won't take long, but I, I've discussed this with my students over and over and over again. The object of your faith. Is it Him? Is it really Him? Now let me Don't answer this question out loud. I've done this a lot of times. Some of you in EE know what I'm about to do. But often our, the object of our faith, when we read the Scriptures and I was telling Becky the other day, I said, you know, there have been, been times in my life, even recently, when I seem to be content to just know the Scriptures and understand them and be able to explain them. Has that ever happened to you? That I'm just content sometimes understanding and explaining it. But, but really it has to come to the point to where what is said in Scripture about Jesus that, that I believe Him. Him. Not the Scriptures. Please understand the distinction here, okay? I'm not saying I believe the Scriptures. I'm saying that the Scriptures are testifying to this object, this person. So I, I've asked my students this before. I said, if you were to die tonight, I hope you don't, you know, uh, some of them, but <laughs> most all of them. <laughs> if you were to die tonight, do you know you'd go to heaven? And, and I said, you know, don't answer that line. And, you know, I'd say, well, if you said yes, that's great. But if I were to follow this question up next and say, and I was trained to do this to say, wonderful, uh, you know, whoever you are, if, if you were to die tonight, you knew you'd go to heaven. What if you were to die tonight, and at the gate, if Peter's there, you know, whatever, uh, you know, whoever's there at the gate, or if there's a gate, I don't know. That's kind of that image we have. If, 
if, if Peter or someone will be there and say to you, why should I let you into heaven? Now, don't answer that, but answer that. Whatever you said is the object of your faith. I've tried to live a good life. It's the wrong object. I've studied a lot. It's the wrong object. I worked in ministry. It's the wrong object. I, I, I grew up in the church. Wrong object. You know, when, when people answer that question sometimes, it's fascinating. I was baptized. It's not the object. What is the object? That it is He. He. He is the object of our faith. He is the confidence that we rely upon. James Kennedy, who designed this methodology long time ago, said that he discovered that lots of people in churches, lots of religious people, had all kinds of answers except, I'm depending on the finished work of Jesus Christ in my behalf. I'm trusting. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Jesus knows that the object of our faith is supposed to be Him, and He offers us evidence in His life, in His ministry, in His Word. Now, I've got a quote here by Elton Trueblood. I think it might be helpful to you. When Elton Trueblood, great American theologian said this, faith is not belief without proof. You have the object you believe in, but trust without reservation. Trust without reservation. I can remember my own life, there have been several times when I've had to come back to this. I, I love people that are real confident. I know you think I am, but I'm not. I have a lot of insecurities, a lot of issues that I think about. And I, remember, I can remember time and time again when, you know, when people say, you know, I'm saved and I know I'm going to heaven. I'm going, wow, that's awesome. That's my hope, right? That's my hope. There are some people tell you that if you can't, if you don't have that confidence in that, you're not saved. And I'd say, well... I don't know about that. But I can remember pretty vividly in my own life when it seemed that the Spirit of God was saying to me when I kept saying, you know, I want the kind of faith that just makes me so certain and so sure of everything and everybody. I tell my students sometimes, look, you don't have to believe everything I teach because I don't. <laughs> and they look at me like, hey, listen, I'm an extrovert. And I work out here, okay? There have been times I've gone to class and gone and said, hey, I better write that down. <laughs> I never thought of that in my entire life. So I work out here a lot. And, and I said, you know, you don't have to, and, and, and I know people want to tell you, you know, you have this absolute dead set certainty. But I remember at one point the Spirit of God saying to me, hey, Cliff, you want certainty, you don't want me. What? You want certainty. You need me. The effect of that was to say, look, what you're seeking is something apart from me. Certainty, confidence, all these kind of matters. Instead of saying again, my 
hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I'm okay with at times just saying, that's the only, my, that's the only hope I have. I don't have hope that my feelings are right. I don't have hope that my confidence is so wonderful and I'm just absolutely confident, you know. Sometimes when people say that, I think, wow, you're, you're pretty sure of yourself. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm insecure about that. I'm saying, I'm saying this, that, that what I've tried to make the object of my faith is times are feelings, certainty, assurance. Are you with me? Anybody with me on these? The sense that my faith is true because I have all of these ancillary or secondary kind of things going on. I'll show you another thing. One day I was praying and I said, Lord, this was real to me. Well, Lord, this all in this area of faith, I said, I am seeking your infilling for today. You're infilling, you're infilling the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit again just bumped me, elbowed me. And he said, that's not at all what you're seeking, Cliff. Here's what you're seeking. Can't spell when I get close to the board. <laughs> you're seeking an infeeling. That's what you want. You don't want me. You want something from me. But God is, through Jesus Christ, willing to give us evidence to say, so you'll know I'm him. And I'm, I'm hooking my wagon to that. I'm, hooking my, I'm not hooking my wagon to feelings. I'm not hooking my wagon to, to success. I'm not, I'm not hooking my wagon to that I do a great job. I'm not hooking my wagon that people think I'm smart. I'm not hooking my wagon to the idea that I've been effective in whatever you want to call it. I'm hooking my wagon to him. He is the object of my faith and my belief. And I don't know if that disturbs you, but there are times, I, don't, I guess you do too, when, when your feelings aren't there. Anybody? Ever? Surely not. Y'all are Christian people, right? You don't ever struggle with feelings. You never have, some of y'all don't have any feelings. I know that. But you know. My dad used to say to me, he said, Cliff, you don't have any, he said, you don't have any feelings because you don't have a heart. He said, oh, you got the thumping gizzard. So, now you know why I'm the way I am. Yeah, but, but this idea of all these feelings and all of this assurance and all that. Jesus said, you'll believe that I am. Listen, I've looked up to heaven before and said, God, I wish you'd help me feel closer to you. I wish you'd help me to feel more confident about my relationship with you. I wish you'd help me in some of those areas, but I'm unwilling to move off of the certainty that I know you are him. And I'm going to stay there. I'm going to remain. You'll know I am He. Listen, the older I get, in some ways, the simpler it gets. Do you know that? Do you know that Jesus is Him? Is that your confidence? Is that, is that your certainty to say, my life is based on the confident assurance that Jesus is he. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Savior. Okay? If you are, what about this week? Try this. 
What if this week you included in your view of faith a matter of evidence? Would you be willing to begin to gather from the New Testament a list of verses that assure you of who Jesus is? You need some help? Email me. I'll get you going in the right direction. You ought, to, you ought to have a list of verses for yourself that say, you know what? This is evidence from the Scripture that communicate to me that I believe and assure me who Jesus is. No one could do the things that He does. You know what's interesting in the Talmud, the Jewish book? The Talmud never contradicts that Jesus performed miracles. Do you know that? The Jewish Talmud that records the life of Jesus in it. He's in there. They're writing about him. They're discussing. They never contradict that Jesus did miracles. They simply said he did it by the power of the devil. That's all they can come up with. They cannot deny that this man Jesus of Nazareth did it. These are Jewish rabbis in the first century writing about him. Let me tell you, when I read that and understood that, I thought, here's a piece of evidence Here's a piece of evidence that the world saw, that Jewish rabbis saw. They don't contradict that he did it. They simply have a different understanding of it. That gives me hope. Finally, let's go to the third one here real quick. Jesus' belief about glory. And this uh, comes back to uh, somewhat Stanton said there. And I've read that section about this understanding of glory. Now, words mean something. And... Uh, we, we maybe need to look at this. I remember this time in, when I was teaching at the university. You know, we need to know what glory means. I was lecturing, and I had a couple in my class from Russia, Roman and Genius Furlov. I've told you about them. He was a physicist and became a follower of Jesus, left his job, came and washed dishes to go to school. And I'm teaching, and, of course, I talk kind of fasting like this. I'm going along, and, and they're, you know, <laughs> they're trying to take notes. But one time I'm teaching, I'm talking along, I'm getting a little excited. And I said something, that's just a bunch of malarkey. And they went, and I thought, uh-oh, I've said something in Russian. <laughs> I know Hebrew and Greek, but I don't think I know. I know yet, but that, anyway. And, and so I, I went up to them and said, hey, what happened? What's the matter? Oh, Dr. Sanders. I got a pretty good Russian accent. I watch all those Rocky movies. Um, they said, oh, Dr. Sanders, when you said malarkey, malarkey is terrible cult in Russia. And I said, what? I said, what it means here is foolishness, nonsense. No, no, that's not what the word means. Look, the word glory here. The word glory. Jesus is saying he's going to be glorified. The word means to exalt or to lift up. Doxa is the way it's translated. The, the idea of being, he said, my soul is troubled. Somebody's going to betray me. And look at verse 31. Now is the Son of Man glorified. I, I think Jesus' belief about glory is different than ours. Exalted. Lifted up. There at least is some imagery here of being glorified, of being lifted up on a cross. You know, this idea of Jesus saying, I'm troubled. They got the story going on the meal. I'll I'll help you in a second. But Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. What's happened? Look at it here. He's declared his his soul is troubled. 
that's going to require some more discussion later. Because it says he was troubled in spirit. That's the same word in 14.1 when Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. Same word. He's troubled. He says, somebody's going to betray me. Somebody's going to betray me. Then this discussion here going on, and I told you, the problem here, why these guys don't know what's happening, is there is this table, as best we can tell, it's not like Leonardo da Vinci's. They're not all across for a group picture, you know? They won the Last Supper by da Vinci. It's not it. Not it. This is where Jesus would have been at the table, and from what we can gather, Peter is down here somewhere. John is right next to Jesus, and when Jesus said, look, somebody's going to betray me, Peter does something like, it says there, notice what it says, and when he began looking at one another, lost, who is it? Peter gestured to John and says, who is it? I mean, I don't know, did he do this? I don't know. But it appears that when, when Peter does this, John asks him, who is it? And Jesus just says to John, it's whoever I dip the sop or this piece of bread. Not loud enough for the rest of them to hear it. It's just right here. Remember it says John is lying on his breast here. Like they're really close, like right here. Like, you know, they're just chatting and talking. It's conceivable these guys didn't hear what he said because they're the densest human beings on the planet, Right? <laughs> They'd have to be pretty dense to not know that. Now, watch this. When Jesus is saying, I'm being glorified, he's telling me he's being betrayed. The disciples are asking, who is it? That's fascinating me. I wrote in my notes that in some sense, when he says it's going to happen, they don't deny it. They just say what? Who is it? Who is it? Is it me? Is it, is it him? Is it, is it because when Jesus says this, he knows them better than they know themselves? And they know that by now. They know that by now. Who is it, Lord? Is, is, is it me? Is it me? This is fascinating. Because Jesus, in all of this context here, he's being glorified. He's being exalted. He's being lifted up. Jesus knows these guys better than they know themselves. Did you know that's true of you and me? I've talked to people before and they would say things to me like, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I did that. Have you ever said that yourself? Or about somebody? No. <laughs> You've said that yourself. I, I think it's because we don't really know ourselves. We really don't. Francois Fenelon, a great 17th century Christian, said, if you're ever surprised at something you do, it's just proof you don't know who you are. You don't know what you're capable of. And these guys are saying, is it us? Is it me? Is it him? Jesus knows them better than they know themselves. And so Jesus answers, it's the one I give the dip to. Again, it apparently is, if you will, so quiet that only John knows. Nobody else can figure it out. And they're completely confused. Now, here's this other thing. Satan enters Judas. And Jesus is talking about being glorified here. See, this is a different understanding of glory. Isn't it? Glory isn't getting your way. Glory isn't being the powerful guy. Glory is submitting to the Father's will to do what God has called him to do, his Father, to give his life a ransom. I know people struggle with that. I have too. And it says, and Satan entered him. How did that happen? 
I'll tell you something I read just this week, and I, I don't have time to... Please don't get some theology of possession or how this occurs, okay? I'm not trying to do that. But T.D. Jakes made a statement this week when he said, you can't rebuke a devil that you keep giving access to in your life. Whew. You can't rebuke a devil that you keep giving access to in your life. Uh, again, Judas is a thief. He's given access. In six, Judas doesn't believe. He's given access. At some point or in some way, Judas is opening the door for him. He's giving him access. And he takes over. I don't know what that means completely. I don't understand. I don't think this is a theology here to build every case on every issue. I'm just saying this again, that Judas has demonstrated over and over and over again that he's given access to the enemy in his life and he's this close to Jesus. You know, some scholars have written on this to say that Jesus is honoring him in this meal. The sop or the bread to dip in is the honored peace. Some would say, I'm just saying, that some would say that Jesus has even loved him to the very end. Some scholars would say, I'm just, I'm just telling what they say. Some scholars would say that Judas would have, or somebody would have betrayed Jesus. That's not the issue. Who is it? But that Jesus is loving him to the very end, giving him the piece of bread that's the piece of honor. And still, I think what's hard for us, and I'm going to, I got to start. I think what's hard for us is this. And I'll just give you my opinion on this and we'll pick some more later. I think it's hard for us to believe that you can be that close to Jesus and do this. See, I think that's, again, we don't know ourselves. Yeah. Well, again, he knew someone would. I'm not suggesting they had to. I, I, Jesus could lay his life down on his own. That verse out of Psalm 41 was fulfilled in the life of David in terms of happened to him. Jesus is saying, this is what's happening in fulfillment now to me. This is what's occurring with me. But this idea of being that close to God in the person of Jesus and able to still do something like this, we say, let me just, I'll, I'll dig in on me. We say that if you're that close to Jesus, that couldn't happen. I beg to differ. I would say that we never fail to have the ability to choose or do something as crazy as that. We think proximity is what matters. Jesus says it's intimacy. Get this now. It's not proximity. It's intimacy. With Jesus... You can go to church and you can be around religious people and you can go to Bible college and you can be a pastor. And you can still wing off and do some of the craziest things. We've seen this over. It's not proximity. It's intimacy. It's our level of life and intimacy with Jesus that makes the difference. Judas doesn't have this. He's a thief. He doesn't believe. It's hard for us to think of that. But it seems clear to me. So Jesus is helping us to understand what is the glory of God. I've got to finish this. I, I just will. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is exalted here, he says, in this act, when Jesus willingly gives his life to this crew. Think about it. 
What is it? What is it exalting? It's exalting, if you will, the love of God that no other God had ever shown in the history of the world. If you study the old gods of the ancient world, they don't love people. They like to push them around. They don't care for people. They like to manipulate them. This God says, I am glorified the most when I'm betrayed, when people rebel against me, when I give my life as a ransom for many. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. This is what Jesus believes about glory. It's not riding in on a big horse and having everybody drop at your feet. It's the glory of God. It's the, I just say, it's the kind of glory you have to turn from. This is the, you go, could he really be doing that? Giving the sop to Judas, knowing he's being betrayed, being willing to stay with those guys and understand that what's about to happen to him is going to be the greatest tragedy in history in terms of an innocent person being destroyed. This is the glory of God. It's not the glory of kings and armies. It's the glory of God that gives his life for the world. That's the kind of glory I'm suggesting to you that you have to look away from. You you have to look away. You think, that can't be true. Yes, it is. It is true. Jesus believes that glory, he is lifted up, he is exalted when he gives his life for the world. His throne is a cross. His crown are thorns. His scepter are nails. This God changes everything. This is what he believed about glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, when we look at you, you confound us. You at times confuse us with how awesome and wonderful your love for all is. Help us as we understand what you believed about the scripture. Help us to, to, to understand what you believed, if you will, about the fulfillment here. Help us to understand these matters for our lives, not just to understand, but to apply in daily living. How we need you. This is so contrary to us. This is so opposite of what we have ever thought, deliver us from our thoughts and give us your thoughts as we consider your life and your living. In the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. See you.